In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Question. When you think of a great leader, what comes to mind? What does this person look like? Everybody doesn't have to speak at once. <laughs> All right, Winston Churchill, right? Anyone else? Ronald Reagan, right? Kind of tall, attractive, deep voice. If Mel Brooks gets on screen, he's playing the president. You know one set of things is going to happen, and it's going to be funny. But if someone like Morgan Freeman comes in playing the president in the movie, you know it's a much more serious role. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I rejected him for being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his, son, his, his sons. Now this is how Saul is introduced in the Bible. It says this, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than everyone else. Young, tall, handsome. The Bible says his father, Kish, was a powerful man. He was the very definition of someone who looked like the perfect leader. The Bible even says that he starts out with a humble spirit. At the beginning of his reign, he listened to God and he listened to the prophets. It did what he was told. He looked kingly. And sometimes he acted decisively. But usually it was his inability to wait that got him into trouble. Now Samuel had anointed him king over Samuel's own objections. Not because Saul didn't look the part, but because anointing a king would make people reliant on the king and take their focus off God. God had made Saul king on the condition that Saul would obey him, and Saul didn't. And Samuel here doesn't seem to want to annoy anyone else. He may have hoped that God's people had learned their lesson, and maybe now they were willing to not have a new king. Maybe because he was afraid of Saul's wrath. But the Bible says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And when he arrived in Bethlehem, the city leaders, I'm sure, were wondering if someone there had committed some great sin. Why is the prophet here? What's going to happen? Was there some great sacrilege that happened that we don't know about that the prophet has to come and deal with personally? They were afraid. And Samuel says, Listen, I'm only here to have a sacrifice with you all. And oh, make sure to invite Jesse to come tonight. They come, the sacrifice happens, and afterwards they start calling Jesse's sons before Samuel. It says this, When they came, he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortal sees. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And here begins a time of testing. Eliab seemed to have looked the part. He's the oldest. So that would make sense, right? The oldest son of Jesse is now the king. But the Lord's response, don't look at the outward. Look at the inward. Jesse, it says, made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? He said, there remains the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, 
Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Now seven times Samuel has seen Jesse's sons come before him, and seven times God, have, God and him have this, this discussion. God, he looks good. He'll make a great king. And God says, no, that's not the right one. Can you imagine this? The prophet is standing there and looks at all of your sons. Keeps going, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Do you have any more sons? Can you imagine what was going through Jesse's mind? He's probably thinking, what did my sons do that the prophet's here? And as they get down, he's like, what did David do? He's out in the field with the sheep. What could have gotten the prophet here? What was he thinking? But they went and brought him in. And he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out on Ramah. David was the youngest, the smallest, the one who looked in the natural, least like a king, least like a leader. But he wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. David was not perfect. The Bible doesn't skip over the problems that he had or the problems that his actions would create. Leaders big and small make mistakes. It's part of leading. Sometimes you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, even when you pray. But David's heart was different than Saul's. Saul started his reign humble. And as he became king longer and longer, he became proud. He wouldn't admit he made mistakes. He wouldn't listen to counsel. And he wouldn't ask for forgiveness. But David always returned to God when he made a mistake. He knew in whom he should trust. David wrote, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. My rod and my staff, they comfort me. You spread a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runneth, you anointeth my head with oil, and your, my cup runneth over. David would have several encounters over the years where God protected him. Saul tried to kill him. Then he, tried to, then he married him off to his daughter. Then he tried to kill him again. This pattern would go on each time God protected David. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David's life was not perfect, but he always had the assurance, the same assurance that we have, that God's mercy and God's grace will continue forever. In our gospel this morning we read, As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Disciples asked a question that people today still sometimes ask. God, why am I suffering? God, why are they suffering? What did that person do to deserve this? Now we know that sometimes parents do bad things during their pregnancies. And children come out sick and injured because of it. But we live in a broken world. And sometimes our problems are just because of that brokenness of the world. Jesus knew that. He said, neither but that God would be glorified. And then after putting some mud on, the, mud on the man's eyes, he told him to go down and wash in the pool. And when the man goes in faith and washes, he's healed, never having seen the face of the one who healed him. The neighbors and those who'd seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And they start arguing with each other. It can't be him, just someone who looks like him. No, it's definitely him. So they give him to the Pharisees, right? And it says the Pharisees called the man who'd formerly been born blind. 
It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And the debate starts all over again. This couldn't be from God. It happened on the Sabbath day. Only a sinner would break the Sabbath. And others said, how can a man be a sinner and perform such signs? Maybe this guy wasn't blind to begin with, they say. They go back and forth and back and forth. The Bible says they were divided. What made Jesus a sinner here? Healing someone on the Sabbath. In this passage, if they don't like what you do, they call into question your moral character with innuendo. And they were arguing amongst themselves whether this was a sin or not. So they gave the man the fifth degree, right? The third degree, the fourth degree. They asked him what happened. And what did he say? I was sitting there and a prophet came and healed me. Put mud on my eyes, told me to go wash in the pool, and it happened, and I was healed. Then they said, hey, we don't really think you were ever blind. So they called the man's parents in. But they also let it be known that anyone saying Jesus was Messiah would get kicked out of the synagogue. So what do his parents do? Turns into an episode of Dragnet. Just the facts. Yes, sirs, this is my son. Yes, sirs, he was born blind. Beyond that, we don't know nothing. Talk to him. He's an adult. He'll speak for himself. But he's someone who's met Jesus. Jesus healed and changed his life. And he kept telling the Pharisees that time and time again. And their response ends up being, you were born entirely in sin, and you're trying to teach us? And they drive him out of their presence. You were born blind, they say that makes you a sinner, healed or not. I'm not going to ask you if you have someone in your life who doesn't want to let you forget the mistakes you've made in the past. But Jesus heard that they drove him out, and when he found them, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answered, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and the one who's speaking with you is he. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus didn't leave him kicked out of the synagogue. Jesus didn't just leave him there to be on his own. Jesus went and found him and explained who he was, and the man believed. And then Jesus told the crowds, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Jesus didn't come to force anyone into believing, but for those with open hearts and minds, he's there. And when the Pharisees heard this, some of them said, Surely it's not we that are blind, right? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not sin. But now that you say, We see, your sin remains. Jesus is telling them, You're living in your pride. Like Saul, like those who said that God's grace shouldn't extend to the man being healed on the Sabbath, for calling him and Jesus sinners. For those that think they have it all together, they're blinded by their own pride. For once you were in darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Jesus had just said, I'm the light of the world before healing the man. But we shouldn't live in pride. We should want to see the world healed. That is what's good and right and true. Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians by talking about what God has done for us, who we are in Christ. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that God created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And here he's encouraging us to live as children, reflecting the light of Christ into the world, showing his love and the fruits we bear, right? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, patience, kindness, self-control, to borrow from Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we shouldn't be living in darkness. Pride, greed, putting our own needs ahead of others. Paul writes, for everything that becomes visible is light. 
Therefore, it says, sleep or awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Sin happens in the darkness, Paul says, but the light makes everything visible. You can't hide it. And here we have not an Old Testament quotation, but probably the first quotation from a hymn. Sleep or awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be awake in the light of Christ today. Share his message of love, and let the light of Christ reflect out into the world around you. Amen.